Section 51 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Third part of Chapter 11. When Nana passed in front of La Samoire and saw her mother inside with her nose in her glass, fuddled in the midst of the disputing men, she was seized with anger. For youth, which has other dainty thoughts uppermost, does not understand drink. On these evenings it was a pretty sight, father drunk, mother drunk, a hell of a home that stunk with liquor, and where there was no bread. To tell the truth, a saint would not have stayed in the place. So much the worse if she flew the coop one of these days, her parents would have to say their mea culpa, and own that they had driven her out themselves. One Saturday, when Nana came home, she found her father and her mother in a lamentable condition. Coupeau, who had fallen across the bed, was snoring. Gervaise, crouching on a chair, was swaying her head, with her eyes vaguely and threateningly staring into vacancy. She had forgotten to warm the dinner, the remains of a stew. A tallow dip, which she neglected to snuff, revealed the shameful misery of their hovel. "'It's you, Shrimp?' stammered Gervaise. "'Ah, oh, well, your father will take care of you.' Nana did not answer, but remained pale, looking at the cold stove, the table on which no plates were laid, the lugubrious hovel which this pair of drunkards invested with a pale horror of their callousness. She did not take off her hat, but walked round the room. Then, with her teeth tightly set, she opened the door and went outside. "'You're going down again?' asked her mother, who was unable even to turn her head. "'Yes, I've forgotten something. I shall come up again. Good evening.' And she did not return. On the morrow, when the coupeaux were sobered, they fought together, reproaching each other with being the cause of Nana's flight. Ah, she was far away, if she was running still. As children are told of sparrows, her parents might set a pinch of salt on her tail, and then perhaps they would catch her. It was a great blow, and crush of ace, for, despite the impairment of her faculties, she realized perfectly well that her daughter's misconduct lowered her still more. She was alone now, with no child to think about, able to let herself sink as low as she could fall. She drank steadily for three days. Coupeau prowled along the exterior boulevards without seeing Nana, and then came home to smoke his pipe peacefully. He was always back in time for his soup. In this tenement, where girls flew off every month like canaries whose cages are left open, no one was astonished to hear the Coupeau's mishap. But the Laurier were triumphant. Ah, they had predicted that the girl would reward her parents in this fashion— it was deserved. All artificial flower-girls went that way. The Boche and the Poisson also sneered, with an extraordinary display and outlay of grief. Lantier alone covertly defended Nana. "'Mon Dieu,' said he, with his puritanical air, "'no doubt a girl who so left her home did offend her parents, but with a gleam in the corner of his eyes he added, "'That dash it! The girl was, after all, too pretty to lead such a life of misery at her age.' "'Do you know,' cried Madame Laurier one day in the Boches' room, where the party were taking coffee, 
Well, as sure as daylight, Clunk Plum sold her daughter. Yes, she sold her, and I have proof of it. That old fellow who was always on the stairs morning and night went up to pay something on account. It stares one in the face. They were seen together at the Ambigu Theatre. The young wench and her old tomcat, upon my word of honour, they're living together. It's quite plain. They discussed the scandal thoroughly while finishing their coffee. Yes, it was quite possible. Soon most of the neighbourhood accepted the conclusion that Gervaise had actually sold her daughter. Gervaise now shuffled along in her slippers, without caring a rap for anyone. You might have called her a thief in the street. She wouldn't have turned round. For a month past she hadn't looked at Madame Fauconnier's. The latter had to turn her out of the place to avoid disputes. In a few weeks' time she had successively entered the service of eight washerwomen. She only lasted two or three days in each place before she got the sack. So badly did she iron the things entrusted to her, careless and dirty, her mind failing to such a point that she quite forgot her own craft. At last, realizing her own incapacity, she abandoned ironing, and went out washing by the day at the wash-house in Rue Neuve, where she still jogged on, floundering about in the water, fighting with filth, reduced to the roughest but simplest work, a bit lower on the downhill slopes. The wash-house scarcely beautified her, a real mud-splashed dog when she came out of it, soaked and showing her blue skin. At the same time she grew stouter and stouter, despite her frequent dances before the empty sideboard, and her leg became so crooked that she could no longer walk besides anyone without the risk of knocking him over, so great indeed was her limp. Naturally enough, when a woman falls to this point, all her pride leaves her. Gervaise had divested herself of all her old self-respect, coquetry and need of sentiment, proprietary and politeness. You might have kicked her, no matter where, she did not feel kicks, for she had become too fat and flabby. Lantier had altogether neglected her. He no longer escorted her, or even bothered to give her a pinch now and again. She did not seem to notice this finish of a long liaison, slowly spun out, and ending in mutual insolence. It was a chore the less for her. Even Lantier's intimacy with Virginie left her quite calm, so great was her indifference now for all that she had been so upset about in the past. She would even have held a candle for them now. Everyone was aware that Virginie and Lantier were carrying on. It was much too convenient, especially with Poisson on duty every other night. Lantier had thought of himself when he advised Virginie to deal in dainties. He was too much of a Provencial not to adore sugared things, and, in fact, he would have lived off sugar, candy, lozenges, pastilles, sugar-plums, and chocolate. Sugared almonds especially left a little froth on his lips, so keenly did they tickle his palate. For a year he had been living only on sweetmeats. He opened the drawers and stuffed himself whenever Virginie asked him to mind the shop. Often, when he was talking in the presence of five or six other people, he would take the lid off a jar on the counter, dip his hand into it, and begin to nibble at something sweet. The glass jar remained open, and its contents diminished. People ceased paying attention to it. It was a mania of his, so he had declared. Besides, he had devised a perpetual cold, an irritation of the throat, which he always talked of calming. He still did not work for he had more and more important schemes than ever in view. He was contriving a superb invention, the umbrella hat, 
a hat which transformed itself into an umbrella on your head as soon as a shower commenced to fall, and he promised Poisson half-shares in the profit of it, and even borrowed twenty-franc pieces of him to defray the cost of experiments. Meanwhile the shop melted away on his tongue. All the stock in trade followed suit down to the chocolate cigars and pipes in pink caramel. Whenever he was stuffed with sweetmeats and seized with a fit of tenderness, he paid himself with a last lick on the groceress in a corner, who found him all sugar with lips which tasted like burned almonds. Such a delightful man to kiss. He was positively becoming all honey. The Bosch said he merely had to dip a finger into his coffee to sweeten it. Softened by this perpetual dessert, Lantier showed himself paternal towards Gervaise. He gave her advice and scolded her because she no longer liked to work. Indeed, a woman of her age ought to know how to turn herself round. And he accused her of having always been a glutton. Nevertheless, as one ought to hold out a helping hand even to folks who don't deserve it, he tried to find her a little work. Thus he had prevailed upon Virginie to let Gervaise come once a week to scrub the shop and the rooms. That was the sort of thing she understood, and on each occasion she earned thirty sous. Gervaise arrived on the Saturday morning with a pail and a scrubbing brush, without seeming to suffer in the least at having to perform a dirty, humble duty, a charwoman's work in the dwelling-place where she had reigned as the beautiful, fair-haired mistress. It was the last humiliation, the end of her pride. One Saturday she had a hard job of it. It had rained for three days, and the customers seemed to have brought all the mud of the neighborhood into the shop on the soles of their boots. Virginie was at the counter doing the grand, with her hair well combed, and wearing a little white collar and a pair of lace cuffs. Beside her, on the narrow seat covered with red oilcloth, Lantier did the dandy, looking for the world as if he were at home, as if he were the real master of the place, and from time to time he carelessly dipped his hand into a jar of peppermint drops, just to nibble something sweet according to his habit. "'Look here, Madame Coupeau,' cried Virginie, who was watching the scrubbing with compressed lips. "'You have left some dirt over there in the corner. Scrub that rather better, please.' Gervaise obeyed. She returned to the corner and began to scrub again. She bent double on her knees in the midst of the dirty water, with her shoulders protruding, her arms stiff and purple with cold. Her old skirt, fairly soaked, stuck to her figure, and there on the floor she looked a dirty, ill-combed drab, the rents in her jacket showing her puffy form, her fat, flabby flesh, which heaved, swayed, and floundered about as she went about her work, and all the while she perspired to such a point that from her moist face big drops of sweat fell onto the floor. "'The more elbow-grease one uses, the more it shines,' said Lantier, sententiously, with his mouth full of peppermint drops. Virginie, who sat back with the demeanour of a princess, her eyes partly open, was still watching the scrubbing and indulging in remarks. A little more on the right there. Take care of the wainscot. You know I was not very well pleased last Saturday. There were some stains left. And both together, the hatter and the groceress, assumed a more important air, as if they had been on a throne while Gervaise dragged herself through the black mud at their feet. Virginie must have enjoyed herself, for a yellowish flame darted from her cat's eyes, and she looked at Lantier with an insidious smile. At last she was revenged for that hiding she had received at the wash-house, and which she had never forgotten. 
Whenever Gervaise ceased scrubbing, a sound of soaring could be heard from the back room. Through the open doorway, Poisson's profile stood out against the pale light of the courtyard. He was off duty that day, and was profiting by his leisure time to indulge in his mania for making little boxes. He was seated at a table, and was cutting out arabesques in a cigar-box with extraordinary care. "'Say, Badinga!' cried Lantier, who had given him this surname again out of friendship. "'I shall want that box of yours as a present for a young lady.' Virginie gave him a pinch, and he reached under the counter to run his fingers like a creeping mouse up her leg. "'Quite so,' said the policeman. "'I was working for you, Auguste, in view of presenting you with a token of friendship.' "'Ah, if that's the case, I'll keep your little memento,' rejoined Lantier with a laugh. "'I'll hang it round my neck with a ribbon.' Then, suddenly, as if this thought brought another one to his memory, "'By the way,' he cried, "'I met Nana last night.' This news caused Gervaise such emotion that she sunk down in the dirty water which covered the floor of the shop. Ah, oh, she muttered speechlessly. Yes, as I was going down the Rue des Martres, I caught sight of a girl who was on the arm of an old fellow in front of me, and I said to myself, I know that shape. I stepped faster, and sure enough found myself face to face with Nana. There was no need to pity her. She looked very happy with her pretty woollen dress on her back, a gold cross, and an awfully pert expression. Ugh! Oh, repeated Gervaise in a husky voice. Lantier, who had just finished the pastilles, took some barley sugar out of another jar. She's sneaky, he resumed. She made a sign to me to follow her with wonderful composure. Then she left her old fellow somewhere in the café. Oh, a wonderful chap, the bloke quite used to it. And she came and joined me under the doorway, a pretty little serpent, pretty and doing the grand, and fawning on you like a little dog. Yes, she kissed me, and wanted to have news of everyone. I was very pleased to meet her. Oh, said Gervaise for the third time. She drew herself together and still waited. Hadn't her daughter had a word for her, then? In the silence, Poisson's sore could be heard again. Lantier, who felt gay, was sucking his barley-sugar and smacking his lips. "'Well, if I saw her, I should go over to the other side of the street,' interposed Virginie, who had just pinched the hatter again most ferociously. "'It isn't because you are there, Madame Coupeau, but your daughter is rotten to the core. Why, every day Poisson arrests girls who are better than she is.' Gervaise said nothing, nor did she move, her eyes staring into space. She ended by jerking her head to and fro, as if in answer to her thoughts, whilst the hatter, with a gluttonous mien, muttered, "'Ah, a man wouldn't mind getting a bit of indigestion from that sort of rottenness. It's as tender as chicken.' But the grocer gave him such a terrible look that he had to pause and quiet her with some delicate attention. He watched the policeman, and, perceiving that he had his nose lowered over his little box again, he profited of the opportunity to shove some barley-sugar into Virginie's mouth. Thereupon she laughed at him good-naturedly, and turned all her anger against Gervaise. "'Just make haste, eh? The work doesn't do itself while you remain stuck there like a street-post. Come, look alive, I don't want to flounder about in the water till night-time.' And she added hatefully in a lower tone, It's not my fault if her daughter's gone and left her. 
End of third part of chapter 11. Recording by David Lazarus.